Welcome to China Tech Talk, the weekly discussion of technology and startups here in China. I am John Artman, editor in chief of TechNote, and as always, I'm joined by Matthew Brennan, founder of China Channel.、Uh, so this week we had the pleasure of welcoming Benjamin Joff onto、uh, the podcast.、Um, he is the、uh, director of Hacks, a, a hardware accelerator、uh, based in in Shenzhen,、um, and you know I was really surprised to learn because it, to be honest. I haven't talked with him that much,、um, but I was really surprised to learn that he、uh, has been in China or been active in China、uh, for a long, long, long time. And I think that Matt, as you and I both know, I mean, being in China or being active in China for a long time really gives you a very different perspective, I think, than than, than a lot of different people, especially people who are just encountering the country or who are observing the country from、uh, from a, from a little bit of a distance.、Um, and so, because of that, you know, we talk don't we don't talk only about hacks, but we talk about the hardware situation. And kind of some broader kind of、um, contextual things that are going on in the hardware, IP,、uh, and telecommunications space. Yeah, definitely a very hardware centric episode, and a great guest to have on、uh, to cover this. There's very few people I can think of who'd be more experienced. Uh, who get a, a, a better, broader picture of、uh, the ecosystem? And、uh, we cover a variety of topics. We talk about China 2025.、Uh, we talk about patents and IP.、Uh, we talk about what's happened with ZTE.、Um, yeah, we're covering a lot, and、um, it's all good stuff. Yeah, I think especially towards the end of the episode, we、uh, we get deeper and deeper. And、um, yeah, it's it's really good to have uh, this uh, an expert on here like like Benjamin and、um, get his opinions on on this variety of stuff. Going on because,、uh, especially with hardware, a lot of it's、uh, you know it's not it's、uh, supply chain stuff,、uh, it's B two B area, it's very technical engineering stuff, and so we don't really、uh, you know get such a clear idea of what's going on unless you just speak to someone who's deep in because、uh, we, we it's not uh, like um, the other topics that we talk about where it's maybe a mobile app ecosystem where you can actually use the products yourself.、Um, so quite a different world. Yeah, I completely. Agree.、Um, I think you know. There's Shenzhen is styled as the Silicon Valley of hardware,、um, and a lot of people say that, but I think not really understanding why that is or or how that came to be.、Um, and I certainly think that、um, after we talked to Ben today, I had a much much better understanding of why that is,、um, and also you know just just how much of an impact the. Infrastructure, the manufacturing infrastructure has for for startups. You know, software、uh, is fairly easy to iterate.、Um, you can, you know, you 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 build you build the you develop the program and then you test it and you see how it works and then okay then you kind of go back to it. But the problem with hardware is that you have to build an actual physical prototype. And doing that、um, can can take can take quite a long time. Whereas,、um, as as we we find out in Shenzhen, the time to do that、uh, because of the, the the infrastructure, because of the history of the city,、um, it, it's multiple times、uh, less than it would be anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, we cover all that stuff. Why Shenzhen is still going to remain competitive even as prices go up, even as wages go up.、Um, all this stuff is, is is great insights. So let's just jump into it. So 
Ben, thanks so much for for taking the time to join us today. Pleasure to join. So the first question that we like to ask um, all of our all of our new guests is, um, what's your China story? So tell us about what you've been doing and and how you ended up at uh, at Hacks. Sure. So my China story actually starts in uh, in France. <laughs> Funny enough, so that's where I'm from, and uh, I studied engineering. I got curious about Japan. I learned some Japanese, and uh, so I went to Japan first in back in 2000 uh, during the the mobile boom in Japan. Like there was uh, like the, basically the first like free smartphones and really sophisticated mobile services. So uh, I lived in Japan for about four years. I got curious about Korea. Moved to Korea for a year. Uh, discovered all the social networks, the microtransactions, the online gaming, and then uh, after Japan and Korea, I wasn't quite sure where, what to do, where to go. Uh, I had just quit uh, my last corporate job and uh, was starting to do some uh, consulting work about uh, telecom, internet, mobile, and um, basically I thought, okay, I've I've seen Japan, I've seen Korea, uh, why don't I take a look at China? So I moved to Beijing back in 2005 uh, at the time where the, the The web 2.0 was still was still a thing and was a uh, like in full force and I started to try to learn about what was going on there and uh, gradually um, basically my my visit uh, turned into a much longer stay than I expected. I was planning to just learn a bit of the language, discover the market for about six months, ended up staying for a good six years and then uh, I moved to different places and uh, ended up uh, joining Hacks back in. 2013, so in um, and moving to Shenzhen and uh, um, and working on hardware. So what 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 got you into hacks in in the first place? Um, I mean, do you have like a, a history of working with hardware or a history of working with um, startups and, and things like that? Yeah, so I, I'm a mechanical engineer, but I basically most of my career has been around strategy and market research. Uh, so I run a consultancy uh, researching Japan, Korea, China. I had a small team of consultants based in Beijing and we're working for international clients. And gradually, uh, we did more and more projects close to startups, sometimes for startups, uh, once they raise at least a Series A. Uh, like I consulted for like some of the, the larger Chinese or international startups about Korea, about Japan, about but China to learn about new business models, new service concepts, things that were not so visible because everybody's looking at Silicon Valley, but there's successes and good ideas elsewhere. And uh, through that, I ended up doing uh, a few angel investments. And I, really real I realized I really enjoyed working with really early stage startups. But uh, as a consultant, there, was there wasn't really a good business model there. So when Cyril, who's the founder of Hacks, uh, invited me in 2013 to, uh, to take a look, I thought, okay, that sounds interesting. And, um, and I, I didn't have a very good impression of, uh, of Shenzhen, and I didn't realize the opportunity around hardware. But then when I visited, I saw that something special was happening. Um, I don't know. I think some, sometimes you get those impressions in your life. And I, I had it maybe three or four times. I had it when I was in Japan with the, the mobile boom. I could see that Japan was so ahead of the curve. It was really, really special. Uh, same in Korea, 2013, 2014, uh, sorry, 2003, 2004. Um, and then uh, the When China was starting to boom also for internet, there was also something special uh, with some of, also some innovation. And uh, then again, I had this impression uh, when, I, when I visited Shenzhen, I was like, this is the early, early days of the, the supply chain opening up. And there's a lot of opportunity. And for, for once, this opportunity is not just a local opportunity, but really a global one. So um, I felt uh, it was really, really interesting. And uh, I ended up uh, joining part-time and then full-time. <laughs> 
and uh, what do you guys do? Uh, what have you achieved? What's, where's your focus? Um, a brief summary for our listeners who aren't so familiar. Sure. Um, so Hax is the basically a hardware investor uh, focused on early stage hardware startups. So we were the first accelerator um, to, to focus on hardware uh, in a very strategic place, Shenzhen, but working with international companies. So three quarters of our investments are outside Asia and China. Uh, half of them are from US and a quarter from Europe. Uh, we've done about 200 investments so far, and uh, we started do, by doing a lot of consumer investments and then uh, switched gradually for, uh, to B2B uh, for enterprise, industry, and uh, health technologies. Um, so a number of our investments are based in China, particularly in robotics, and uh, some of them are doing really well. Like one is quite famous in Shenzhen. It's called MakeBlock. They do uh, robots for education. And um, they have over 500 staff now, and they raised a Series B over $30 million uh, last year. So the model of Hacks is to help companies go from a very early prototype uh, to a, basically a complete product and then helping them scale. So for that, uh, we have a team of 30 people in our Shenzhen office uh, where we host typically about 30 startups at any time. We invest in four or five startups every month. And uh, then we have another branch in San Francisco that helps with uh, fundraising, with marketing and with sales. Why? Why have you seen this trend? Why, why is it being more business-to-business focused? Yeah, so hardware itself was really difficult and expensive to do until a few years back. Uh, Shenzhen was basically a private garden for the, the very large companies. But as the supply chain opened more and more, and as the, the barrier for starting hardware companies were getting lower and lower, initially you had like simple gadgets, like the, you know, uh, connected devices, uh, like smart smart things um, that started that basically kind of prime the prime the pump. Um, but that gradually you could see more and more sophisticated projects, uh, teams with more scientists, with doctors uh, who decided to to jump in, and even people with uh, with a lot of uh, industry experience. And as it turns out, selling products to consumers is actually quite difficult because they don't really have, you know, pressing needs. Everything is kind of nice to have and they're also very price sensitive. Whereas for businesses, as soon as you can solve uh, like an ROI situation, like basically you can... Uh, you solve a business problem that, that and offer them ROI, um, either saving time, saving money. Uh, the spending is easy to justify just based on that. So with basically more sophisticated products that are closer to industry, those those deals tend to be more appealing than consumer gadgets from an investment standpoint. Increased complexity in in the actual what what people are producing and I, I, yeah, B two B actually is can be much easier than B2C. That's right. G- generally, people have less knowledge. Like the, the image of startup founders is that they're you know, young grads and typically they don't have a lot of industry knowledge because they, they haven't worked in, a, in industry. But um, I would say in, in hardware, you can see kind of broader range of people um, from, uh, I think the youngest founder we, we invested in was 19, but the oldest was 57. So, you know, it's uh, it's pretty broad. Uh, and some of them have many, many years of industry experience. So that's, uh, I, th- I think that's probably a bit of a differentiator in hardware. Uh, in addition, I said like the cost of, uh, of building hardware have gone down. The image is that to do anything with a physical product, you needed millions of dollars. And today we have teams going to market with less than a million dollars in total investment. So it's a, uh, we're not yet at the stage of software where you can do everything with just, you know, just a few thousands of tens of thousands, at least to, to get a first prototype out. Um, 
But and also the big difference between hardware and software is that with hardware, you cannot really sell prototypes because, you know, hardware is kind of physically dangerous, whereas with software, much less so. Um, so I, I'd estimate that in terms of cost with hardware, we're probably where software was like before cloud infrastructure, like maybe around the year 2000 to 2005. Mm, that's a really interesting analogy, actually. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, soft, software and hardware are completely different. Uh, I've always thought software is much more flexible and uh, you can just iterate, get stuff out. But but hardware requires a lot more. Um, is it, it's just more barriers to entry, really. It's more difficult. Do you think there's going to be a sort of breakthrough? Is, is something like 3D printing or something going to be able to make things easier to, to get things more like software? So there is this hope, uh, for example, of 3D printing, um, but so far, the real use for 3D printing is, is with rapid prototyping. Uh, it's not an industrial process that scales well. Uh, it's either too expensive or limited in material or, or not enough high, like high quality enough. So uh, maybe down the road, that will be the case uh, when you have a production infrastructure. It could be actually very, very beneficial to be able to print even like custom type of products based on each customer next to the customer. Uh, that'd be fantastic. But I think we're still quite a few years away. So so, so Hacks is, is based in, in Shenzhen. Um, so what, what exactly makes Shenzhen such a good place for a hardware accelerator? Yeah, so people, I think, who haven't visited Shenzhen don't really realize the scale and, uh, of it and, and its benefits. But essentially, it's a place that has been built uh, based on decades of multi-billion dollar investments in the electronic supply chain. So you have not only all the range uh, going from really, you know, one-off components uh, to multi-million unit scale uh, for production and uh, prototyping. So the real benefit of that is not so much on a, like the image is that it's all about having something at low cost, but you also end up with low quality. Uh, it's, it's not the case. Um, what you have is that you have every quality, every scale, more or less every cost. Uh, it's not necessarily the cheapest, but what's really more important is it's the fastest. So the turnaround time for prototypes, for components, and for production is faster than anywhere else. Uh, the startups that join us, even from Silicon Valley, tell us that in a week in Shenzhen, they do more than a month back home. And that's the real advantage. Um, so I guess, I mean, so, you know, there's there's been a lot of, um, you know, so, so as, uh, you know, China has been kind of upgrading, as the economy has gotten stronger, um, you know, so so has so have the companies, and, and of course, you know the the cost right. of labor has been rising as well. So you, you know, a lot of a lot of the manufacturing actually has been leaving China. Um, so how is is Shenzhen still? I mean, like so, so there's there's that efficiency and 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 the speed, but is it still is it still like the manufacturing hub of China, or or has it or has that kind of moved somewhere else, or is it moved out of China completely? So it's it's a good question um, because it's true. Yes, the labor costs have been going up, uh, and some of the low end manufacturing has been moving either to other provinces or to foreign countries like Philippines, Vietnam, other places. Um, but for electronics, uh, the Shenzhen and Guangdong remains like the, the number one in the world by very, very far. Because you can't, it's not just moving a factory, it's really moving about an, moving an entire supply chain. And that, that's really complicated and very expensive to do. In addition, it's not just moving a factory and putting in, you know, uh, just low-end workers. There's an extremely large amount of, of know-how, of technicians, of production engineers. Now, I remember reading an interview of uh, Tim Cook 
discussing with Charlie Rose about uh, like why not move back the manufacturing Apple's manufacturing to uh, to America and uh, and the question was like is it about cost and and Tim Cook's answer was that no it's not about cost it's about skills if you put like for example all the experts in injection molding in the US in one place you probably need you know a big room to put them in China you would need several stadiums so this know-how is just very difficult to find elsewhere and China has it in droves and keeps training and, and pushing the envelope because they keep improving their know-how beyond uh, what they were initially trained for. Well, the, the Chinese government has you know, been has released a, 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 a um, what, would you, what would you say a policy a, a, a plan uh, made in China up and made in China 2025, which is you know is is, is trying to take this even further, moving up the value chain yes. um, for for Chinese industry. For our listeners who aren't familiar, it seems it seems to be quite a big deal actually. Um, so for, for listeners who aren't familiar, um, could you explain like what what is made in China 2025 all about, and, and what actions are the Chinese government taking to uh, move manufacturing even higher end um, in China? Yeah, so it's a really interesting plan because um, the idea is to have uh, not only to keep the, a lot of manufacturing uh, local uh, and keep serving international customers, but also it's about the creation of Chinese brands uh, that have global relevance. So to keep the manufacturing local, what's happening is China is very quickly modernizing its, uh, its industrial infrastructure. Uh, so China has absolutely no problem installing robots, robots all over the place, which is really kind of in stark contrast with what America is doing, which is all about jobs. In China, it's all about efficiency and quality. So uh, the, the government is supporting factories to modernize with robots. They're, they're basically uh, subsidizing a lot of that. Um, so that will help improve efficiency. Uh, and quality is through automation. Uh, you even hear of things like dark factories where basically you don't need light because it's all robots. Um, so that's on, on one hand is um, uh, modernizing and automation. On the other hand, it's, uh, it's about creating Chinese products with global relevance. Uh, so there's already some companies that obviously are selling internationally. You have uh, like older companies like Huawei, you have uh, ZTE, you have, uh, um, who else do you have? Uh, you have uh, BYD starting to export. Uh, you have Lenovo, of course. Uh, but then you also have the kind of the younger guard like DJI. Um, you have Xiaomi. Uh, so companies that are, you know, five to 10 years old. And then uh, what's interesting is you have obviously an, another wave and a much larger wave of companies that are younger than that and that will become global companies but are not yet well known outside their borders. Uh, I mentioned one of Hack's portfolio companies called MakeBlock, where it's a company, it's a robotics company with already 500 people with tens of millions in revenue and that sells more than half of its products outside China. So it's already a, a, glo a Chinese global company. It's just not very famous. Or you have companies like Ninebot uh, that do the like the personal transporters. Those guys bought Segway and are operating internationally under the Segway brand. Uh, but essentially, it's a Chinese company. Uh, so those are kind of interesting. Uh, if we talk about hardware products, th this is really what it's about. It's about creating... Chinese companies that don't look Chinese, just like back in the back in the day, you could say Sony uh, tried to become international by changing it, its name from like Tokyo Electric something 
to to a, a name that sounded much more international. But it feels like that 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 transition. I mean, so you know, I, I first heard about this 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 type of movement maybe maybe about uh, two years ago, and it seems like in in those two years, there's been a lot of progress that that's been made on on that front, um, where you have more and more companies like like you were saying that are just able to um, to really um, to really push out and and to create like you said a kind of a, a global brand. But I mean, like what's what's been the um, like what what What's what's is is it is it the manufacturing that's been able to do that or I mean like how is it that these I mean because Chinese companies have always had a, a bit of a problem especially with branding um, either because they they go with a Chinese name and no one can pronounce it um, you know or maybe you know their marketing team is 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 local maybe the the quality of the product is is seen as shoddy so I mean like what's changed all of that or or is there something else going on I, I think you could say the the marketing and so and the quality are, are not really the causes i think really the key is that so we know china can manufacture anything uh they manufacture the apple products so once you once you know how to do that you can make pretty much anything um the problem is can you come up with original ideas and can you can you sell it can you sell sell those products um and i'd say china was there was so much to do in playing catch up and in running businesses and there wasn't a lot of hardware entrepreneurs until recently uh, but now it's seen as an opportunity and there's a lot of engineers in China there's a lot of uh, engineers trained either in the best Chinese schools or in uh, or internationally there's uh, like hundreds of thousands of Chinese who have uh, you know studied in uh, US universities and uh, universities in Europe in, uh, in Australia in a bunch of places so the, there's people who have actually a lot of skills uh, of either of Chinese origin, and some of them are, are starting to see that uh, actually there's a lot of opportunities now to come back and to build companies. And obviously also the, the people trained locally who've been less exposed to our global best practices, but still can be a re, you know really sharp guys and girls, um, they actually go into business and they, they come up with original things. So the founder of DJI, for instance, was trained in, uh, in Hong Kong, and then uh, then now uh, is running a company in Shenzhen. So that's uh, that's one example. Um, so basically, I think the the challenge was that until recently there wasn't that many people who were you know trying to push the envelope with original ideas and confidence because there was a lot of gaps to fill in the market. But now it's uh, they I think they realize that it's possible to create original products and be successful. Um, so it, on our side, for example, at Hacks. Over the past two years, we've seen an increase of uh, the number of high-quality Chinese teams and Chinese products that are really original. Um, so we invested in particular in a number of robotics companies making things that we haven't necessarily seen elsewhere. Uh, we have one company called uh, Yoibot. Uh, they make robots for vehicle inspection. So there's a lot, of, a lot of actually vehicles that need inspection. For example, for, for buses, they need their wheels inspected regularly. So that uh, they, you know, they don't uh, they don't blast and uh, they don't end up killing a bunch of people. Um, we uh, there's uh, like vehicles at customs also need inspection when uh, you know they have cargo and all this sometimes sometimes require generally requires a uh, basically a, a person to spend a lot of time to do that and it's not very efficient and the robot can do it uh, a lot more efficiently and a lot more safely. So we see a lot of really interesting companies coming up. Uh, but generally, they're not very visible outside China because they start by selling their products in China, which is the market they know better. Um, so that's one, as that's one aspect. Another aspect is that many Chinese companies actually 
don't really target uh, Western markets um, because the product is sometimes not suitable or sometimes because they don't have yet the knowledge and ability to sell internationally. Uh, I, I can give an example, like Xiaomi is making products that you know are not particularly original, they're fully commoditized, but they're good quality, but they don't sell internationally because on the one hand, they might not have initially the knowledge to do that, particularly in a, in, a, in Western markets where it's very competitive and brands are very established, uh, but also because in some cases they, they have to overcome uh, the issue of some uh, international IP um, or uh, simply to have the right people to do, to do this job. Uh, Xiaomi is, is actually kind of a difficult brand to pronounce outside China. So it's, it's pretty clearly not being thought through when it was created uh, as an international brand. But now, like being called me on the, uh, like after a few years, they have a better shot and they have intentions to do to go international beyond emerging markets. Interesting. Yeah, so I would definitely agree. There's, there's a, a rise of uh, Chinese companies uh, being more innovative. Um, there's definitely a push from the government. Um, I want to talk about next about like um, actually how much progress is China making in in setting global standards for hardware and manufacturing now. There's uh, there's been a couple of examples that come to mind recently. Uh, you know, Huawei has spent a lot in in 5G, um, and they're trying to get more involved in the, in the global process of setting those standards. And also with One Belt One Road, uh, high speed rails, uh, China's using that as a way to export their standards in that area and standards for manufacturing are really, really important. So um, what's your take on this? Yeah. So to talk about the, since you mentioned telecom standards and 5G, uh, I actually used to work in telecom and I still have quite a bit of familiarity with that. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. And it's, it's something most people don't really like think about or care about or know about. Um, but it, it's actually sometimes really important for, for industry, um, for, and for example, uh, it's a, it, actually standards are really long game. Like standards take many years to be established. It's a negotiation. Uh, it's a, it, it has a lot to do with like the soft power of countries and also companies. And China, just like Japan before it, has realized that uh, intellectual property uh, patents and licensing uh, cost a lot of money. Uh, Japan had to pay enormous amounts for licenses for semiconductors. Uh, China had to do that too. Uh, for telecom, many of the patents, uh, original telecom patents, were actually either in Europe around GSM or in US around a standard called CDMA. Uh, people think that the giants for, for telecom are Apple and Google, but those guys, you know, they didn't know anything about telecom until 10 years ago. Um, so a lot of the patents were not in their hands. And uh, one of the reasons uh, Google actually acquired Motorola is to have access to their patents. Once you have a lot of patents, you can start to do cross-licensing. means you, you, you tell other people that you don't pay their, their license fees, they don't pay your license fees on, on fundamental technologies around you know, 3D pro, uh, 3G protocols or, or radio systems. So China had pretty much no IP, um, but they didn't have a lot of patents. Uh, China doesn't, didn't have a lot of local patents registered. So the problem for Chinese is that they could make things locally, but they could not easily export it because of, of uh, cost of, uh, of those patents. So they started to work at trying to include, uh, trying to compete with their, their own standard about 10 years ago, uh, a standard called TDSCDMA that probably pe people don't need, need to know about. 
But that standard was one of the big reasons why uh, Apple couldn't sell its phone to China Mobile users. And China Mobile is the biggest telecom operator on the planet. That was because of standards, because um, the iPhones were not working with the Chinese standard. So that came, that started about 10 years ago. And as it evolved from, you know, 3G to 4G to 5G, uh, China and uh, the Chinese players in telecom kind of up their game and are now part of the definition of standards instead of trying to s- create a separate one. So that puts them in a much better position. Um, you mentioned that in industry, it also applies and it does. Um, but overall, is just to understand that standards are, are a game that uh, it's very sophisticated, it's very long term. And China is one of the few players that can that can actually play that game because they, they can have long-term planning. Uh, they have a lot of resources and uh, they're very patient. Yeah, I, um, so, the, so before I joined TechNode, I was working for a, um, uh, a localization service provider and our largest client was, was Huawei. Um, so, you know, I, I was able to get a firsthand look at, at, at some of, some of the, um, their communications internal and, and external. So tr- mostly training materials and things like that. So this was like two or three years ago now. Um, and, and even then they were talking about 5G and they were very, uh, they were very proud that they were going to, they were, they, they, that they were actively involved in setting the standard, uh, when it comes to, to 5G. Yeah. And the thing is for Huawei, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's a double win for them because not only are they making the phones with the 5G standard that they help to uh, to create and that they can be in on the ground level in terms of uh, making and providing the actual um, hardware te- technology uh, for the phones, but then also, of course, for the actual telecommunications equipment itself. Um, and that's what's so interesting about Huawei as a company, because they're not just doing phones, which I think a lot of people are uh, fairly aware of. They're also doing uh, base stations and other types of telecommunications equipment. Um, and so the fact that they were able to get in on the ground level to define these standards and to shape them the way it would be beneficial for them um, is, is is a huge, huge win. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it, you could say it's almost the, it's almost the other way around, because uh, Huawei started as some kind of local competitor to Cisco. Uh, so they actually come from the telecom network world. Uh, and it's probably the main reason why they have such an intimate knowledge of radio systems is because they've been working on networks for basically what, two decades. And they, they're, in fact, relatively new to phones. Um, so I don't think for a standard mobile handset company, it's it's easy to uh, to help define standards. Generally, the network people define the standards and the telecom operators define the standards. So the people who build the equipment and the people who operate them. Um, the, the mobile phone is, is generally like, you know, could say the lowest, like the, the end, uh, the, t- the, the, the tail of the dragon, even though if that's uh, what everybody sees and everybody has in their hands. Um, I think a company like, uh, um, oh, the guys making chipsets also, they're also very active. Like guys like Qualcomm, very active on standards, very, very active. Uh, sometimes it's even a political battle. Uh, so you mentioned about like the, the connection with the One Belt, One Road. Uh, well, just after the Iraq war, um, in the first one, in two, like in 2003, uh, there was a political argument. What kind of mobile network should be built in Iraq? Should it be a CDMA standard based on the US standard? Or should it be a GSM standard? Uh, based on what every single country around Iraq uh, was actually using. And there was actually a bit of a political battle. And there was a, sen- the sen- a senator uh, in ca- based in California who was basically 
defending the interest of, uh, you know, defending American interest and the interest of Qualcomm in particular, were saying, that, well, we won the war. Uh, let's let's put a CDMS standard. So you know, it's uh, uh, you know, there's a, sometimes there's a lot of soft power around uh, around standards and businesses, and uh, sometimes it's a. Uh, it's uh, it's part of the the military package. Uh, almost you could say like the the, the Marshall Plan was uh, Europe after the war. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you even look at uh, Hong Kong. It's just really simple stuff like the influence of the of, of the British there in terms of standards of um, you know what side of the road you drive on or or uh, what what you call the first floor rather than the ground floor. All of these things filter through the electric plugs. Just look at like the shape yes. of the British standard, right? So those are those kind of yeah, and uh, and it's true that China, who's building basically a lot, so China is trying to access resources in Africa. To do that, they need uh, infrastructure. Africa on its own doesn't have uh, the cash and know-how to build it. So China is is bringing the whole package. Is bring bringing the expertise uh, in infrastructure, and China is very good at infrastructure, um, um, like train, electricity, uh, and a lot of other things, and of course manufacturing, mining, and all those things. And part of the package is basically to, you know, set that. So it's it's uh, definitely part of the, you could say, soft power, uh, thanks to the the fact that they they, ha- they they can make really long-term plans. That's one of the advantage of a of a government that uh, doesn't uh, doesn't have democratic elections. That if 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 it's well played, you can make really long-term plans, and that's that's one big advantage. So are you are you suggesting that there's a connection between Huawei um, and we can talk about ZT in a second and and uh, the the Chinese government? Well, I think at some point. Uh, I'm not sure about the details, uh, but at some point, of course, like the Chinese government wanted to create local champions, like every single country uh, on the planet did. Um, like Korea supported a number of industries, like, uh, uh, for example, shipbuilding, automotive, automotive. You know, it's uh, you know, governments wants to ha- want to have uh, globally competitive companies. Um, now, if uh, if the question uh, is about uh, whether Huawei, who runs telecom networks, sends all the data to the Chinese government uh, like the NSA did, this I don't know. Right. No, I was just bringing it up because there's always there's always talk about the uh, the connection between the two, uh, and of course, Huawei is very. Um, is usually very uh, aggressive in in making sure that 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 people understand that there isn't you know some kind of um, backroom dealings going on, but I do think that 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 your point is uh, well made and um, and well taken. You you look at made in twenty made in China twenty twenty five, and you look at what's happened with ZTE. I mean, we just ran a uh, an article about this recently about how um, the ban on uh, ZTE uh, from the United States, um, so that that legal action against them. How that's kind of trickling down to um, to the development of core technology, including, of course, um, telecoms telecoms uh, equipment, um, you know, chips and, and and all sorts of things. Um, so I guess you know we've mentioned we mentioned ZTE a few times now. I just mentioned um, this 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 new this new uh, fairly new. It's been a couple of weeks now. Um, the action against um, ZTE. So give a bit of background then. Um, so basically the uh, ZTE. So there, there there's a ban on um, um, exporting um, certain types of of, uh, of technology to um, Iran. And a lot of it has to do with Iran's um, um, uh, nuclear program and whether or not they're building a bomb and, and so on and so on. 
Um, and ZTE was caught red-handed shipping in American technology into Iran. Um, they were told to stop. They said that they would. They didn't. Um, then they were told that, and then they then they said it was a mistake, um, that it was only a few a few employees and that these employees would be punished. Um, then it turns out these employees were not punished. Uh, in fact, they were given um, their, their yearly bonus, um, which I think there's an interesting discussion about corporate culture differences between the U.S. and, and China and the role of bonuses. Um, in, in in the Chinese labor market, um, but because of that, the, the the U.S. government said, okay, well, you know, this that was the last warning. Now we're going to put um, a seven year ban on um, on ZTE, you know, using or acquiring any American American technology. Um, and then, of course, because of that, um, Xi Jinping and the Chinese government, they're use, it's it's super interesting how this is playing out because Trump gets to the Trump administration gets to say, you know, look, this is a big win for us. We get to look tough, um, and then China gets to say, well, you know, we obviously we have to rely um, on ourselves to uh, produce and manufacture this type of, of, of stuff. Because if we don't, then, you know, companies like ZTE, um, who are, you know, maybe not maybe not global leaders, but certainly they are uh, very important. They're a very important company for the Chinese economy. Um, they, it, we, we, we can't let a company like ZTE die because of uh, American, uh, because because of American sanctions. Well, it essentially, it shows, I, I guess, the complexity of, uh, of trade relations and uh, yeah, the fact that uh, that now with the Trump administration, there's a like there's a very high level of scrutiny on the on the, on the the link between uh, you know trade and politics. So I guess to some extent, uh, maybe ZTE is not you know that critical to the U.S. market, and it's a way um, to show Amer- display American power with some you know some legitimacy because of the the initial ban that was that was uh, uh, that was uh, established uh, with Iran. So to me, uh, ZTE is uh, like a unfortunate collateral damage of uh, of broader trade negotiations. So yeah, I mean you know. One of the things that 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 you did mention was, you know, whether or not, um, you know, there there is some kind of national security risk. Um, so, you know, there there are people that say that Chinese hardware, especially the phones, like from Huawei or ZTE, perhaps even from 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 uh, Xiaomi. This built with 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 these back doors. I mean, how how should we interpret that? I mean, should we should we believe people when they say that, or do you think that it's 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 completely impossible? Or kind of where do you stand with with that type of idea? So I think technically everything is possible, but I also think that you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. And so far, uh, you know, the the existence of such rumors seem more like a you know a tool for negotiation or to get a competitive advantage against them is just rumors yeah yeah exactly i mean i, I just i just listened to the uh, joe rogan podcast he had on an ex-cia guy who who says who says i mean he has no direct direct knowledge he says that if the cia is saying it if the intelligence service are saying it then it must be true so i mean it's it's um when it comes when it comes to uh, intelligence agencies, it's hard to tell what's what's true and what's um, what's Who disinformation. Knows? I I assume that there is a back door. Like <laughs> if I'm if I'm I'm uh, using an iPhone, I assume that there is a way for uh, you know, Apple to, to to get in, and certainly the American government to get in, and and vice versa. If I'm using a Huawei, that's my assumption. Uh, and maybe I'm the other way, but mm. uh, I I'm kind of made my peace with it. But I think a lot of people have you know have strong opinions about. Yeah, I mean, following the NSS scandal, I think America is not in a very good position to, you know, criticize so much. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, it's why you know everything is possible. You have like cameras and microphones on it, on everything, so you know everything is technically doable. Yeah, but that's 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 the big question. I mean, because you know, and I think this is this is a a good point to make at the very least that you know at least at least in the United States we have due process, and that there is this there is this idea um, that there are certain things that the government can and cannot do. Um, and in the case of in the case of Apple, I mean, everything is and is is encrypted. Um, all your data is encrypted and the encryption key is on your phone. Um, so unless there's a very sophisticated way to get at that encryption key, which as Benjamin pointed out, I mean, anything is possible. And I, and I do believe that if the NSA or the CIA, I mean, really wanted to, maybe maybe they could, right? I, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Um, but Apple is adamant that it's not possible. Uh, you look at recent attempts over the last few years for the FBI to get access to data on Apple devices, and it's been um, there's there's obviously there's a legal gray area in terms of fingerprinting, uh, face scanning, and things like that. But the whole idea, the way that Apple says these devices are built, is that it's impossible to get at the data unless you authorize the 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 access. So whether or not there's a backdoor with Apple products, I think is is a big big question. Um, and 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 there's no evidence to say to say otherwise. Um, and, and the opposite case with that is that I mean Android is an open system, um, and you know these these uh, Android companies around the world, so not just Chinese, they make different versions of Androids. Uh, so the the technical term I believe is called a is is a, is a fork. So they mm-hmm. basically they make a new version, a customized version of the Android operating system. Um, and the issue is how much actually is encrypted. Um, and you know as we were talking before, what exactly is the nature of the relationship between these companies and and the government um, mm-hmm. or governments? Um, and so, and I think that the biggest difference between China and the U.S. in this sense, again, is that due process. So on the one hand, yes, of course, the NSA um, scandal that, that Edward Snowden broke was a big, big deal, but that was mostly software companies or internet services companies, not hardware companies. Um, and even then you saw that these companies were, um, I mean, everything was, it looks like everything was fairly legal, actually. I mean, the 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 scandal wasn't whether or not it was legal what they were doing. The scandal was that they were that they were doing it and it was legal, uh, because this was never um, revealed to the American public. But the, the the these these companies were you know acting in a legal manner, um, providing this information. It wasn't that NSA was breaking in or or doing anything like that. Um, and they were actually charging money for these for these information requests. Um, whereas in 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 China, I mean, who knows what's happening because everything is so opaque. And so yes, of course, you know, say what you will about Apple or what's happening in the US with the NSA. But at the very least, we have some sort of some sort of due process. And there is fairly strong tendencies towards uh, transparency. In China, there's nothing like that. Mm, well, you're saying it was legal, but, but hidden. And it sounds like it's the same thing that is being uh, suspected of China. Uh, I don't see a, like, a very big fundamental difference there. Uh, but it's true that the Chinese government seems to have a bit less checks and balances and transparency overall. Um, but, you know, who knows on the, uh, you know, I don't, don't have more information than you do on that. It's definitely uh, like a, a, a topic that is um, super controversial. People feel really strongly about it. But I, I find that every time people discuss it, it just ends up going around in circles. Um, <laughs> well, we, we should probably leave it here for now. You notice, uh, me, you notice that I'm staying silent. 
and I'm sure some listeners will disagree. Have to disagree with uh, with with our viewpoints. Um, but when, before we finish the podcast, I just want to touch upon one point, um, which Ben, which is about uh, the area of patents and trademarks and, and IP protection in general um, in China, because I'm sure you have plenty of hands-on experience of that, dealing with that through hacks. Um, you know, the stereotype for so long in China has been that these things are really not respected. Um, and if you come to build something, some hardware in China, for example, you're going to have a very tough time protecting your innovation, uh, tough time protecting your brand. Um, you know, is this is this justified? What is the reality these days? Yeah, th- there's a few aspects to it. So first, I'll start by talking about the startups we invested in. So as investors, obviously, we don't want any of our company to be copied and have problems with their IP. Um, and so far, out of the 200 companies, roughly, that we invested in, uh, we haven't had really any like copycat issue. And the key reason is that they're making products that are fairly complex, particularly on the software side. So in some cases, you could, you know, uh, copy the hardware, but then you just get a dumb box. You know, you could put all the chips on a circuit board, but if you don't know what they're supposed to do and you don't have the right software on it and the right algorithms that are really complicated to develop, then you get you have nothing, essentially. You have basically a, a dead, like a, a, a dead computer. Uh, so we haven't really had any IP issues, but we, of course, we also know that there is risk. There are risks around IP. Uh, in particular, if you do uh, much simpler products or products that don't include any software, um, and in that case, yeah, like Chinese are uh, Chinese factories, Chinese engineers. Some of them are extremely good at reverse engineering, and they could uh, they could probably redo a product and maybe even improve it. Uh, because they have a much more intimate knowledge on, on, of manufacturing processes. So in some cases, the copy can actually be better than the original. Um, now, uh, IP has evolved a lot to cover not only patents um, and trademarks, but also all sorts of kind of intangible IP. Uh, when I talk about software, it's mostly know-how on trade secrets. There's also IP around the way you organize your supply chain, around uh, your, cust- your customers, so I'd say there's many, many ways to defend a product and a business. Um, but as we can, as we can, uh, I'll, I'll take an example that's quite famous. Like I think everybody knows about uh, hoverboards. So the, it was kind of popular, you know, yeah, two years ago. So hoverboards uh, were origi- originally designed by a Chinese-American inventor. And he designed it. He started to show it in some trade shows. He had an early prototype. And then as he was starting to, uh, to manufacture it, some Chinese companies redesigned it, went around these patents, actually designed, you could say, potentially a better system and better electronics. And then, you know, because it was actually a fairly simple product, many factories started to kind of uh, started to manufacture them. And suddenly you had them all over the place. So they got a bad name uh, because of some uh, battery issues, uh, because it was a problem of battery quality and power management. But on the, on the electronics and mechanical design standpoint, it was actually a really good product. Um, and what happened is that eventually you ended up with a product where the ownership of the patents for the new product were, was actually not that clear. Um, the, the original inventor looked at suing some of the, the, the other companies, but he couldn't because they actually went, they created some different system to achieve the same thing. So um, eventually, uh, you know, there's uh, now there's like a bunch of products on market. 
and uh, some are pretty good quality, but uh, there's not many. There's not many. You know, there's uh, there's no like clear inventor of the new design. It's a really kind of strange situation. But is it? I mean, has has the general IP environment improved in China? Is it? Is is from your saying for most companies, it's really not an issue because of their uh, technical expertise. But in general, do you think it's? Uh, yes. Is it? Is it? Is it yeah, that's a good easier. To- than it was before to protect things like uh, trade secrets, like uh, like like branding, yeah, so, trademarks. So uh, yes, uh, China has improved a lot. I think what people used to make fun of is like the you know the 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 shoddy uh, quasi brands like uh, I don't know like uh, things that yeah. look like a McDonald's, yeah. that look like Nike, look like this, look like that, kind of were like derivatives. Uh, so China has improved a lot on that, um, and I think it it kind of moved in lock steps with China's motivation to protect their own domestic brands as well. Uh, and I would say it seems that uh, the justice courts in China um, actually don't really favor uh, local players in that type of judgment. Um, so, of course, you have to remember that in China, has different legal system in terms of uh, patents and trademarks. In China, it's first to file. That means that even if you have made a product somewhere else a long time ago on your well-known brand on the market, the first to file your brand or your patent in China will will own it. And uh, I think Apple actually had to buy something like the, was it the iPad trademark or something in China and paid something like $60 million. I don't remember exactly the numbers for the trademark because they hadn't filed the trademark and somebody else filed it. So, um, you know, this this is like the, the local uh, legal system. Uh, and not every uh, every country has the same. Uh, America is one uh, and uh, China is a different one and some you know, other countries might have different ones. Um, so I think on the trademark and patent, uh, generally it works pretty well. Um, that said, when you're a startup, you know, Trademark is cheap, is quick. Uh, patents, uh, you can file like provisionals and do stuff like that, and it's pretty cheap. But defending a patent is a totally different story. If you're a startup and you have a very aggressive copycat and uh, or very aggressive competitor, uh, and you're trying to defend a patent, well, good luck to you because it's going to cost you years and millions of dollars wherever you do it in China, in US. So generally, if you're at that stage where you have to actually defend a patent, you're really in trouble unless you really have very very strong case and you can find you know people to back you with uh, with money to uh, to actually defend it. So it's a uh, it's not an easy battle, but overall the the situation has been improving a lot in China for both domestic and international companies. Awesome. Have you have any of your companies had to defend? Uh, their trademark or uh, their, their IP in some way? And if so, what was the result? Uh, so not that I remember. Uh, I, I heard that some companies have, have faced trouble uh, because uh, uh, if you run a Kickstarter, uh, there might be somebody in China, if your Kickstarter is successful, that will file your trademark in China and uh, then uh, use that either you know, to sell it back to you. Uh, and, you know, same as uh, internet domain names, you know, some people might might register the, the Chinese domain for, for your for your company name. Um, but we, I think that happened maybe to a couple of our companies that mentioned that, uh, that somebody like filed a China trademark. So they, they had eventually to file a slightly different trademark. Um, but aside from that, we haven't really seen any convincing copycats. Funny enough, actually, MakeBlock, the, the company I mentioned based in Shenzhen making uh, robots for education, 
uh, one of our like earlier investments uh, that's doing very well. They had some some copycats from China, even though they're Chinese themselves. And what they said about it is that the quality of the products that the, the, those copycats were doing, uh, particularly on the software side, was was so low that they never really achieved anything. So uh, it wasn't really ever a big problem for for companies. But the companies we invest in typically have a very strong barrier of entry in terms of uh, of software or science, and it's not something that you know a run of the mill factory can actually uh, uh, manage. Right, right, makes sense. Uh, maybe as a final question, is there any um, companies, Chinese companies, Shenzhen hardware companies that you're particularly excited about now and any tips for our listeners for future stars to watch out for? Yeah, so uh, I have a few I like. So DJI is famous enough that I uh, probably don't need to mention, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Ninebot. Uh, I think they're, they're based in Beijing, but uh, of course they make all their stuff in, in Shenzhen. And uh, I really like what they do. I think they're very innovative. and they're, they're, I think that's really a key to understand that it's not just about coming up with an idea. It's about building a product and it's about building an affordable product. So Segway had been around for over 15 years, but hardly anyone had one because it was so expensive. It was like five, $6,000 to get one. And Ninebot came up with their like mini thing that's less than 500 bucks and works really well. And I think that's really demo- like the role of democratizing innovation is just as important as uh, coming up, coming up with uh, like groundbreaking ideas. Uh, so big fan of Ninebot. Um, after that, well, I'm you know pretty big fan of the companies we invested in. Some of them based in Shenzhen, some are a bit a bit outside in other places in China. In robotics, for example, there's one I really like called Plecobot. Uh, they make um, a robot that works a little bit like a pleco fish in aquariums. Uh, they basically stick to high-rise windows, and they can clean clean the entire facade of the of the high-rise. And there's a lot of windows to clean in China. Um, then, um, yeah, the the one doing inspection robot um, uh, called UiBot. I'm re- really big fan. Um, and uh, I guess those are the ones that kind of come to mind. Uh, in terms of others with kind of international ambitions, I think there's a, a in, like a Insta360. Uh, there's a few software companies, a few hardware companies uh, doing like 360 cameras that are pretty good. Um, for hardware, who so far, there's not that very many names, uh, but I, I expect that there will be more and more as, a, as a time, go, time go by. Well, great. Um, yeah, no, this is this is this has been a really good episode. Um, so, so Ben, just just before we go, um, where can our, our listeners get in touch with you, or or where where can they where can they find you? So, if they're working on a hardware startup and they have a prototype, they can head to hacks.co. Uh, hax.co to apply to our program um, and uh, if they want to find me they can go on Twitter um, Benjamin Joff on Twitter I also write on Medium uh, same name and uh, yeah they can also email me at ben at hacks.co if they, they want to keep it private perfect perfect well well, Ben thank you so much again and that's about all the time we have for this episode of China Tech Talk um, if you enjoyed this episode we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes if you're on Overcast or Pocket Cast, you can tap on that star button and it will recommend this episode to your network. Um, and if you want to get in touch with either Matt or I, you can find our contact details in the show notes. 
In case you didn't know already, TechNode has a plethora of daily and weekly newsletters to keep updated on what's happening in Chinese tech. In particular, the ones that I'm most proud of are our daily briefing that goes out six days a week, Monday through Saturday. Uh, it's a curated summary of what's、uh, what other media have been saying about China, both in Chinese and in English. And then our thrice weekly newsletter, China, the China Funding Daily, which looks at the largest fundings of the week. 